What? Oh, no. <laughs> I was just in transit. I was just staring at the beautiful red light. Red light. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you, and you too. Hey, Todd. Hi, Mark. You are here in person. We are here in person. We're sitting at a table. Oh, I just yanked out the headphones. And you yanked out your headphones. Uh, yeah. Um, we've been doing some... Uh, it is pretty echoey. It's it <laughs> it <is>. terrible. Sorry. <laughs> That's all good. As your un, un, as of yet undecorated uh, room yeah. that you guys are still busy it's trying to move into. Hot, hot room. Uh, the... <laughs> We have been learning to grow microgreens and yes. uh, things in, in this household as we want kind of a, a sustainable, better food source that we Nerd. Have, have, <laughs> totally, that we can uh, grow ourselves and kind of be a part of the process and, and stuff. In the process, I learned, do you know what the difference is between black-eyed peas and chickpeas? <sighs> I don't. Well, the black-eyed peas, they can sing us a song, but uh, chickpeas can only hum us one. <laughs> I like that one because <laughs> right up until the end, I didn't know where it was, where it was coming from. I was yeah. I was thinking it was going to go in a Fergie direction <laughs> of some sort, but was pleased to see that. Ah. <laughs> I had to wait to the very end, the last step of that journey for it to pay You're off. You're welcome. <laughs> well, uh, as you're taking that sip of water in celebration, because Mark, the results are in and we are a hit with college students. <laughs> we, we are. <laughs> we got a nice a nice little letter from our friend Brian Turner uh, a couple weeks ago. We talked about uh, um, being a part of one of his uh, lectures, I guess, Uh about science in the media or science and yeah. communications and yeah. how to share science with a broader audience yes and, and in the media and he got a couple of responses from his students that that was that was a highlight of their of their experience in his class so <laughs> the mark and todd guest <laughs> highlight of, of uh, higher education higher everywhere. education everywhere. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, thanks to uh, Brian Turner and uh, the crew over there. That was that was a it was a fun episode to or fun discussion to have with that group. Yeah, totally. And, uh, yeah, it was, a lot of fun. it was. Well, it is also um, the thirtieth anniversary, and I bring this up sort of for a reason, but only because I can. The thirtieth anniversary of uh, Truth or Dare. Madonna's Truth or Dare documentary, and I bring it up wow. because um, there is a new. I am I am a sucker anyway for documentaries um, about musicians and rock stars and stuff like that. I just have cane always toads. yeah, and cane toads. Um, just because I've always found them all fascinating, you know the the trappings of fame and all that. And usually, usually they're pretty boring. And I say that because there's a new um, rockumentary, I guess I call them, about Pink that is out hmm. on Amazon Prime. And so I was watching that and still 30 years later, and like I've watched the Miley Cyrus one and the Justin Bieber one and the Katy Perry one, like all of these ones. I'm like the first week that they're out, I'm like, I've got to watch this. And all of them still are just in the exact same template as Truth or Dare, which itself was a break from the different this is just a tour concert tour video. And even the pink one, it was mostly done in color, but there was a couple of like the confessionals or whatever that's done in that <laughs> black, black and, and white, white to make it, give it that weight. Yeah. But what, what was interesting is that I have forced so many people to watch truth or dare. And it's funny to watch something like pink's one, which was more about um, her kind of traveling the world with her family, which was kind of interesting, but there was no, they had a countdown, like countdown to the Wembley performance or whatever. That was kind of the artificial drama of it, but there was just, it was kind of devoid of everything with, I mean, it was nice to see what she's like with sure. her family or whatever, blah, blah, blah. 
But what is so fascinating to me still about Truth or Dare is that Madonna looks terrible, not like physically terrible, but like just a terrible person many times in that and just just an awful bitch and just you know and then there's she looks good in other parts and it's like it's yeah. just this whole even though some of it's still kind of manufactured some of the situations are manufactured it wasn't like scripted and so she just comes off as this whiny terrible little person in charge of this empire and that to me is what is fascinating like that's what really i keep was. wanting and i just don't think anything like that exists anymore because people can't look or are unwilling to look bad i think yeah i i think it's that's i think that's part of it as as well as we don't really have uh as mega a star yeah anymore like you can you can argue uh with maybe beyonce beyonce and uh, uh taylor swift maybe yeah but uh beyonce i think was the only one that comes close and that's still like not it's so like even with Collins Brothers, I try to explain them what fame used to be like, like Michael Jackson right. and the Beatles and Madonna, and right. like there's just no conception of that uniculture anymore. Like right. LeBron James is very famous enough to be famous outside of basketball, but that's still not. It's yeah. so interesting. Well, we own we now have so many media sources of. You know everything from you know Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and and all the the online social stuff, and we don't have fed to us the the lightning rod specific. Here's what you are going to enjoy. Yeah, from the three channels that we had on television, or and the movie, know, and, the TV shows were talking about the movie that was talking right. about the album that was talking about this one thing the whole time, right? Right. And now everybody has three million followers, and nobody knows who Who's, anyone is right. anymore. Totally. It's so interesting, but I, I highly, highly recommend if you haven't seen Truth or Dare, uh, go to see that because it's amazing. And um, it's interesting. I have t- now interacted with three of the dancers who were featured in that for her Blonde Ambition tour. So I was very, I've been very like paying attention. Like there's a there's a couple of them, and like one posted a picture from Oregon, and I was like. Nice hey. to see my home state or whatever. Like, so very <laughs> trying to make sure that like not too many people are commenting so that they'll see. It's just so pathetic. But I'm like, love it. I talked to Gabriel <laughs> or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, that that movie, uh, I've probably seen more than anything else in my life besides Back to the Future and Star Wars. Mm. But anyway, I have a lot of news built up, so we'll go through it quickly. I'll kind of uh, bottom line a lot of it because we haven't. Um, I haven't recorded in a bit, but we'll start off with some really good news with after years of detecting landmines, a heroic rat is retiring. So a rat named Magawa has been working for five years in Cambodia, sniffing out the landmines, and he's believed to save lives, and now he is headed towards retirement. Although still in good health, he has reached a retirement age and is clearly starting to show uh, to slow down the nonprofit Apopo said. I don't know what Apopo stands for, but it's the nonprofit. Um, so Magawa is a Tanzanian-born African giant pouched rat who was changed to sniff out explosives, and he was able to identify, um, he was able to cover more than any other rat at 2.4 million square feet of land. Uh, he found 71 landmines and 38 uh, un- items of unexploded ordnance, which is an interesting, must be just ex- maybe a, a rocket that fell off right. and didn't explode or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last year, Magawa received one of Britain's Britain's highest animal honors, uh, and he got a gold medal for his work. And it was the first time in the 77 years of honoring animals in Europe that we have presented a medal to a rat. Yeah, just like the end of Star Wars with their tiny, <laughs> tiny necklaces. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they started that in World War II to, to recognize animals for the gallantry in the face of conflict. So nice. congratulations, Magawa the rat. Magawa. Um, another big topic over the last couple of weeks has been this whole U.S. Intel report on UFOs. Yeah. And so I believe the full report is being um, released uh, in a couple of weeks or in a week now or whenever that is. But so far, the initial report said that there are no evidence of aliens, but they can't defy uh, deny a link either. 
So the report doesn't rule out what pilots may have seen. And I think we've seen a lot of videos of, of that have been going around. Um, the officials were not authorized to discuss the um, discuss it yet. Uh, it the report examines multiple unexplained sightings from recent years, and in some cases have been captured on video of pilots exclaiming about the objects in front of them. Um, the thing that they're starting to—they're not calling them UFOs; they're starting to call them unidentified aerial phenomena. So UAPs, yeah. So it'll be interesting because some of those, like I'm not a big. There's actually aliens flying around here or anything, but some of the some of that video it's is very compelling. pretty unsettling. <clears throat> and did you watch the 60 Minutes episode? Uh, no, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, the clip itself, it's like 15 minutes long, is available on YouTube. And okay. Highly recommended. And there's basically a guy uh, in <clears throat> the FBI who is it's, it's like the X-Files kind of guy where he was tasked with uh, gather the information about these UAPs and let's let's start to dive into them a little bit deeper. And so he's, he started collecting stories from mostly pilots that hadn't been taken seriously uh, until that mm-hmm. point. Is basically they're, they're like, we clearly saw this. There were four of us. There were two planes, two people in each plane, we watched it for 15 minutes and we have some uh, like uh, video that's that's of the reconnaissance, you know, uh, uh, the yeah. videos that we've seen. But their descriptions of the things that it was able to do that, you know, like 600 G forces of saying with no ailerons, yeah. uh, you know, no control surfaces, no apparent source of propulsion uh, able to go in all directions you know, it, it just things that defy our current understanding of physics right because i was going to say if this was like some intercepted international thing who right. would even be capable exactly. of doing that and that's precisely what they're they're like regardless of the source of this this is a national security threat period right and whether it's the chinese or you know or russia or whatever uh, we had this in our airspace and it defies our ability to defend ourselves against it. Right. You know, like we couldn't do anything if it chose if it's to. an animal? <laughs> would that be, what would be better? Question mark? Worse? Question mark? If it was an actual, hmm. right. you quote UFO or some sort of animal that <laughs> fly at Mach 12 or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and dragons and, and so they definitively say like as you said we don't have evidence of aliens right what we have is no evidence of the source of this right and uh and so it's it's a very compelling conversation i don't think that the report's going to come out on june 30th and say you know we've got contact with right. the race from alpha centauri it'll just say the same thing but longer probably right right Wow, it's, it's fascinating, and I highly recommend that segment from sixty minutes, like three or four weeks ago. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll check that out. Uh, speaking speaking of UFOs, and I won't read this story, and I also apologize, first time listeners, but Albuquerque campaign event interrupted by a drone with a dildo dangling between <laughs> a big campaign event for New Mexico sheriff who is running for mayor of Albuquerque abruptly descended into chaos Tuesday night. When a drone buzzed into view with a dildo dangling down beneath it, according to the Albuquerque Junior, a junior, a journal, around seventy people gathered to hear can- <laughs> candidate Manuel Gonzalez III speak before he was harried by this <laughs> by this sex toy. Video shows the dildo jiggling around Gonzalez's head when the oh. woman in the audience asks, "Is that a dong on a drone?" <laughs> Yes. Yes, a ma'am, that is. A man identified as the venue's owner attempts to grab it from the sky before getting into a scuffle with another man who tried to get it back. So they identified the man trying to get it back as uh, Kalen Ashby Dreyer, and he said he was swinging a balled-up fist at Manuel Gonzalez III, yelling, he's a tyrant, and at one point managed to strike the mayoral candidate. So he is in jail. Um, but there's this wow. isn't the story. The reason that it made me laugh even more is because this is the second time. There's a very old 
me like I want to say from 10 15 years ago or whatever of some other event where like like the drone comes in and like just that cruel thing of like three inches above where somebody could grab this drone with a big dildo hanging off of it Uh, uh, it's just so juvenile but never not funny (laughs) there's another one where he's like somebody threw one up and it stuck to the wall of a high school gym and it was like videos that the students were making of like some poor faculty member like standing on a chair with a broom and just like knocking it around which of course is not gonna (laughs) knock off a suction cup just like batting it around and (laughs) oh uh, that's the kind of (laughs) prank i can get behind absolutely um well the south is coming to get us because in oregon sales of to-go cocktails are here to stay right on. so on tuesday lawmakers approved senate bill 317 which allows bars and restaurants to sell mixed drinks and in and single servings of wine in sealed containers for off-premises con, uh consumption during the pandemic the sales of the cocktails will wait sales of the cocktails will continue in oregon even after the pandemic is over so uh, it makes a permanent law. Speaking of things that happen in emergencies tend to become law forever. Yep. This just happens to be, well, I don't know if this is a good thing. Because <laughs> in the South, as I mentioned, they literally have drive through liquor stores right. where they give you a mixed drink in a glass with a straw. But as long as it's got a cover on it. And the straw has the bit, a bit of paper on the end of the straw to make it a covered drink. Yeah. And it's like... Yes, yes. With your gun rack, you know, in, in your back window of your truck. Yeah. So awesome. that'll be, yeah, the interesting. So the restaurant industry, uh, industry lobbied for that um, because that really helped them through the pandemic to have people be able to come up and pick up things. So that is now waiting for Governor Kate Brown to sign in the law. Um, this was a, all of these articles that I had just hanging out in my browser for the last month all ended up being like the length of wired articles <laughs> last night when I, so uh, this one I won't read because it was more of a, a, um, a feat or profile, but it was, it's called the new detectorists and it's about Mark, the new wave of hip metal detectorists. Awesome. And how that's be- behind it. becoming a thing. So I won't read into that. Uh, <laughs> you can Google the new detectorists and read it yourself. But I did pull, one thing of it, and it says people have been metal detecting since when do you think? What do you know the origin of a metal detector? Uh, I don't. Um, it's it's gotta be um, about a hundred years ago. Okay, it was in 1881. Wow, when Alexander Graham Bell invented a device to find the bullet lodged in President James Garfield. Wow, isn't that wild? Yes. That's so crazy. And so it obviously wasn't uh-huh. one, like one for recreation that came, right. you know, 10, 20 years later or something like that. But Alexander Graham Bell invented it to find the wow. bullet in President Garfield. That's good trivia. Uh, That's good trivia. That is good trivia. So Costco is bringing back the pre-pandemic staple of Yay. food samples. So they announced that it's beginning a phased return to sampling after a 14-month hiatus. There's a hundred, roughly 170 U.S. locations that will bring back food samples in the first week of June with most of the remaining locations toward the end of June. So um, well underway as we are almost midway through June here. Um, So there's going to be some changes included samples being prepared behind plexiglass, made in smaller batches and distributed to customers one at a time (laughs) instead of the the koi the koi like <laughs> feeding frenzy of gaping open maws <laughs> hoping for that little tiny <laughs> square of frozen burrito <laughs> it, it really is like <laughs> like the peanuts on an airplane where you're like oh my god peanuts <laughs> these ones are honey roasted and there's almost a full tablespoon of them and 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 it's just context we have been yeah. given that that's our con exactly yeah. the context and so in costco i get a chip with a little bit of bean spread on it and i'm like oh my god can I get two of these? I'm going to steal Every, from yeah. Costco by getting two of these. 
I'm going to go around the aisle and come back and that will fool them. Meanwhile, this minimum wage order is like, yeah, whatever. Hey, hey Mark. I get paid by the box I give away. So like. (laughs) Take three. I did like this did come with a picture and under the picture it said a picture from 2018 of how Costco food samples used to look like. (laughs) Reading a history book. Um, So yeah. Crack reporting there. (laughs) So the food court's also seen some changes like to the seating, but they're going to see if they're going to introduce, they're introducing new and improved churros to the menu. (gasps) Churros and new ice cream replacing the frozen yogurt. So I've been on a kick. It started with the, um, the raspberry special K a cereal on top of my vanilla ice cream. Okay. My, my ice cream always has to have a vanilla base, I've realized. Also, it makes me thirsty and sick to my stomach. Okay. Um, so it's always got to have a vanilla base, and I've been putting cereal on it, which is great because it's always like the first bite of cereal where the milk is super cold and the, the cereal is still very crispy. But then I bought the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Churro cereal, yep. which is just an elongated Cinnamon Toast Crunch in the shape of a star. And it's just like a little log of churro. And that is so good with my vanilla ice cream every night. So high recommend on that one. <laughs> um, a quick story about monkeys that I'm not going to read. But monkeys adopted the accent of another species in a shared territory. So they mixed these colonies of monkeys. And the monkeys that were introduced into the other one's habitat over time took on specific changes in the way that they made noises for certain things and so they all the new ones adopted kind of the parlance and the way that the the established monkey tribe had been referring to things and and calling things so that's pretty interesting um hold on and we're, we're plowing through we're making it we're making it through <laughs> here um there was a research done on yawning which always fascinates me because we still don't know why we yawn or why we sleep or whatever but um this this study which i'm going to try to disprove from the the scientific journal communications biology from these from the new york polytechnic institute go on but it its conclusions were that it provides a strong indication that the duration of yawning is linked to brain size and the number of neurons in the brain. So their theory is that yawning cools the brain. Hmm. So it says, despite popular belief, yawning does not function to oxygenate our blood. So we don't need to um, take in extra oxygen at that point. That's not why we do it. It says we do it to to cool the blood flow to the brain and it has thermoregulatory function. And it said the studies have supported that idea. For example, they show that the temperature of the brain drops rapidly after yawning and that the ambient temperature determines how often yawning occurs. And they found people rarely yawn when they hold a cold pack to their head or neck or do other things to cool the brain. So they studied a bunch of animals, blah, blah, blah. But in order for us... That doesn't make sense to me because we don't yawn more when it's hot. Athletes aren't constantly yawning in the <laughs> middle of their games. Like, uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense that like at the times that we usually yawn, which is maybe when we're a little bit tired or a little bit, you know, resting at the end of the day or during the slump in the afternoon times when we're tired, like yawning is correlated to being tired in some way like nobody full of vim and vigor right is yawning so a result is but probably because, it cools the brain right and well because they are full of vigor they don't need to cool the brain <laughs> is their, it is their vigor brain is a known fun- coolant <laughs> for brains yeah, pretty sure pretty sure <laughs> It's, but yeah, so I don't, this, it doesn't, it doesn't track with me, even though they studied more than, they collected more than 1,250 yawns from 55 mammal species and 46 bird species. Mm. So they went to several zoos with cameras and waited by the animal enclosures for the animals to yawn. (laughs) Um, So, oh, and they researched YouTube and like would watch videos of yawning so that they could study, study the animals doing it. There's a, there's a like 
resume piece. <laughs> it's like I was the researcher that watched seals for 37 days while I waited for one to yawn. <laughs> to yawn. Um, so this, there is a distinction that they are talking about the duration of a yawn here, but um, yeah. it says it, it it increases with the size and number of neurons, or in, which has been correlated to intelligence. So a bird's blood cools more quickly to the ambient yawn. So a shorter yawn is significant than that of a mammal. Um, but yeah, the, it all goes back yawning to stay alert. Brains function at the optimal temperature. Blah blah blah. But it just it doesn't it doesn't add up, Mark. <laughs> so I'm gonna write my strongly worded letter to biologist Jorg Mossen of Utrecht <laughs> University in conjunction with the New York Polytechnic Institute and the scientific journal Communications Biology. So um, two space stories. They're sending some squid to this uh, on to the international. Um, space station to study a bunch of antimicrobial things. Again, I won't get into the article, but that's interesting to think of a squid in space and how that would move without gravity if they would just like <laughs> like a plastic bag, yeah, just continue to to be there. the The biggest fear that I would have is uh, the fluid moving enough to keep oxygenated, uh, okay, because you would get. A little pocket of of depleted oxygen uh, water around them. Oh, sure. That wouldn't naturally flow with gravity and their movement through the water. And so, if they're just hanging out in water, you would. And, and this happens to Sharks humans. Too. Oh. Well, to humans on the International Space Station, the the air has oh, to flow a lot. Yeah. Otherwise, you develop a, a epoxy kind of. Uh, Weird yeah, uh, of, of of a little CO uh, you know carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide bubble around you because there's no right it's just flow. hanging out it's just hanging with you oh you know? that's crazy <clears throat> and, and so and epox on your family too <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> that's so nice to have back <laughs> um, they have uh, there is a tardigrade update Mark. <gasps> Yes, but it's tardigrade not watch. a tardigrade watch. Oh, I don't know what these buttons do. Okay. There we go. Their survival limits have been shown to be not as much as we thought. They cannot survive the high speed impacts that we thought they could. And it's a new word that I learned. The implications for panspermia. <laughs> or panspermia, or I don't know which. I don't know where that's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. But uh, go on. Um, but basically, they discovered that through a trial of freezing tardigrades in water and then shooting water droplet bullets at bags of sand, they realized that they could not uh, that they could survive impacts of up to 0.9 kilometers, and then an S minus one per second minus one. Which is equivalent to 1.14 GPA shock pressure. Yeah. And so meters to the minus one would be centimeters. Um, But they can't survive anything above that. And so the reason why that's kind of an important thing is because one of the ideas of how other planets may have life is that tardigrades just hang out on asteroids and they could live into space with no oxygen, no water forever, and then land on a habitable type planet where they, you know, begin to flourish or whatever, but they are not able to survive a lot of the impact of what it would take for an asteroid to hit a surface or something like that. So, um, that, that is redrawing their idea of how panspermia Mm. may happen through the Mm. universe. (laughs) So, uh, all right, we are nearing the end. I promise. Um, the Alpenrose Dairy could become a 193 house subdivision. So they are thinking of selling that property. The descendants of the dairy founded by Florian Cadno sold the dairy business in 2019 to Washington State's the Smith Brothers amid a sp- uh, family riff in a public lawsuit. Uh, now a Florida-based Lenar Corporation, uh, who must own that, is looking to turn it into the subdivision. So... It's been there since uh, 1916 and still, I don't think I've ever, like there's still a functioning dairy there. <clears throat> yeah, fully which, functioning dairy and they've got a little 
It must they, be they, very off the beaten path because like as much as I drive around here, I feel like I would have stumbled upon it a is dairy in the, the middle of the city. Yeah, it's it's not. I think it's closer to like Beaverton, right? Beaverton. Um, um, I've Southwest been, I've been there. Road. Yeah. So. Um, I've been there uh, in the late 90s. Uh, there was some things that we were doing with concerts out there, I think. Something. All right. Well, while you look that up, a uh, this news this story has been everywhere too, and I wasn't going to read it, but it seems like everyone's talking about it, which we had the finger on the pulse of what the nation is talking about. And it's a story of a lobster diver in Cape Cod who said a humpback whale scooped him up and ate him and spat him back out. So the commercial lobster diver said he escaped rather unscathed after being swallowed by the humpback whale. He said, I was in his closed mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds before he rose to the surface and spit me back out. I'm very bruised, but have no broken bones. So that he was about 45 feet down when he suddenly felt this huge bump and everything went dark. And he initially feared he had been attacked by a shark. He said, then I felt around and I realized there was no teeth and I had felt really no great pain. He said, and then I realized, oh my God, I'm in a whale's mouth. I'm in a whale's mouth and he's trying to swallow me. (laughs) So he was still wearing a scuba gear and breathing apparatus inside the whale's mouth, which he said was completely dark. And so uh, he said, fearing he wouldn't make it out alive, he thought about his wife and sons. After a half minute, the whale rose to the water surface and began shaking its head from side to side. I just got thrown in the air and landed in the water, he said and i was free and i just floated there i couldn't believe it so <laughs> his crewman josiah mayo said he saw the whale burst onto the surface and toss packard back into the sea so a real life jonah wow. story so wow. that would be a lot to process to <laughs> wake up in a whale's mouth seriously so um back to the alpen rose dairy yeah so if you drew you know the circle of the sunset highway uh, 217 and two uh, and I five okay. kind of create a circle. It's dead center in the circle, very near Raleigh Hills. Okay, okay, wow, that's crazy for how often I used to have a client that that lived around there too. For how often yeah. I drove around there, how I must have missed it. Uh, well, the United States has yet to see a lightning fatality this year, says a oh. record. So it's the first time in the nation has made it this far into the year without a lightning death. Ordinarily, the United States would average about two to three or excuse me, three or four lightning deaths uh, by the second week of. Oh, I'm sorry. This just in just hours after that story was published. No. A man died after being struck no. by lightning in New Jersey. No. <laughs> the man will show you. <laughs> The man who hasn't been identified was playing golf uh, uh, and the site claimed to reveal the man was struck between the sixth and seventh hole under a tree where he was seeking shelter. So golfers uh, always die in lightning accidents. Uh, that's the, the, the first go. I so uh, you're not supposed to obviously go under trees. Then. No trees. Just lay flat somewhere. Uh, just yeah. Try to get down. Yeah. Get and and take the big lightning rod <laughs> that's in your hand and get rid of that. Uh, I uh, in early 2000s i signed a contract to do a website for a company and the next day the ceo was killed uh, from a lightning uh, strike while golfing in palm springs and what a uh, weird place to be struck by lightning palm springs i know it was just a palm springs and a lightning storm came over and snapped and he's dead like it happens so fast and it's not always just like we're expecting this big lightning storm. It's it just can be nowhere, just a yeah. tiny little storm, you know. That uh, what a trip. Yeah, I wonder what yeah. that would feel like, or if you even felt it long enough to feel it. I've seen the little video of the four people under the tree that gets. So I don't know if it's real or not. Is the is <laughs> is this my like bottom your, line? Is this like a, your video last night of dubious descent where everything <laughs> descends into flame and napalm? Yes, very similar. <laughs> um, and so four people under tree struck by lightning. Yikes. And um, is this a recent story? Very recent. Oh, okay. And so. Well, they must not have died because there Mark was no deaths up to this year. Struck by lightning while taking shelter under a tree in Gurugram. Oh. Uh, I don't know where. It's Guru, next to Insta. India. In India. And so um, I'll, I'll just. Did I'll everyone just, hear my Instagram jokes? No. And so they're hiding from oh, the no. thing under Do the tree. Die? 
Whoa. What? Yeah. Wow. So, so Holy don't, Toledo. Well, it's like being, I imagine, it's like being stunned with a stun gun. Yeah. Uh, All absolutely. of those. So, yeah. Imagine imagine in your head, kids, uh, four people standing around like a regular sized park tree. They all lived. One was in critical state in the ICU. Okay. So, yeah, people standing there kind of ring around the rosy style, I guess, just with their backs to the tree. You see it wasn't even like this huge tree exploding lightning bolt, but a lightning bolt hits the tree. And imagine everyone's doing a trust fall, but with no one in front of them. Like they just fall fall face first. Three of them all at the same time. And then one of them like three seconds later. I think he was that the fourth person was leaning against the tree. So maybe was stuck to it a little bit. Kind of. Yeah. And then ultimately uh, fell. But did they? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Did they they say what it felt like? Yeah. And then they got swallowed (laughs) by a whale. It hurt. (laughs) It hurt. Ouch. They said. (laughs) All right. Last thing. The study ranks Pennsylvania as this story is from Pittsburgh. um, So which is why it's Pennsylvania focused as the fourth grossest state. So some states have a lot of things, blah, blah, blah. According to the study by uh, a career site called Zipia, which is obviously looking for free publicity from places like me who want to say career site Zipia as much as possible. The study looked at factors like dirty air, the spread of illness and trash. So the top five grossest states in this study, Mark, what do you think they are? Um, trash. What, what are the other factors? Uh, Dirty air, the spread of illness, and trash are some of them. It doesn't... Um, Delaware. No. (laughs) Delaware's clean and easy to identify size-wise. Pennsylvania? Yeah, Pennsylvania was number four. Uh, Ohio? No. No. Are they all northeast? there's no like great ways to guess this. Are they northeast? Um, there's, it's, there's no Southern one or like very Southern ones. Like there's yeah. not the Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, which was surprising. Uh, so there are the, uh, three coastal States and one mid country state. Huh? Um, so like North Carolina. Yes. No, North Carolina is number three and, um, West Virginia. Uh, no, but Virginia, Virginia. Yeah. So okay. number one is Virginia. Uh, number two, South Carolina, then North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Oh. So those are the grossest states, according to <clears throat> career site Zipia. And, and those, and those place places doing the most to usurp uh, any kind of EPA, EPA rate, guidelines. Rate. Yes, good job, people. <laughs> Didn't Texas decide to just charge everyone all that money anyway? And now like are adding to the taxes, being able to do something or other. It's a mess. Anyway, well, they're gross. They're number five gross. (laughs) That's all I had for all of our news. I keep fiddling with my headphones. Is is one going out? No, it's my cord. I think it's getting bad. My $8 headphones from Fred Meyer that I use instead of the nice Sony ones that you (laughs) kindly provided me. Cool. Well, um, based on your prompting last week <laughs> and uh, based on my own prompt, request to the top market podcast, the market, market podcast uh, I, I've gone into and, and studied a little bit about Alan Turing and uh, learned some things that I didn't know about him before and, and uh, really fascinating and such a shameful loss of a human so let's let's talk about alan turing so yeah. uh he was alive from 1912 to 1953 so uh, the beginning of the the 20th century and he was a computer scientist mathematician lo- logician uh, cryptologist, philosopher, and arguably one of the greatest minds this country has, has seen in philosopher. the philosopher. <laughs> oh. I, I don't have. Oh, uh, it. I barely knew her. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I should load up. I barely <laughs> no, knew her. I need to bring back my stream deck. Yep. Um, and so he, uh, he, very early on in his uh, he childhood. is an American? No, he was British. He was okay. born in, born in a suburb of London. 
Uh, he did come to the United States uh, for some time in the 30s. He was uh, very much uh, let down by our work in cryptography and went back to Great Britain to continue his work in Great Britain. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so, so we were not. Your cryptography, <laughs> sir, is a bollocks. <laughs> and so uh, very early on, he gravitated towards science and chemistry initially. And then in uh, the 1930s, uh, late 20s and early 30s, he uh, started in on uh it's studying a lot of uh, theoretical sciences and um, uh, as the world of atomic energy started to come about, he was um, studying uh, the physics of uh, atomic matter and, and uh, trying to think of the word Qu- quantum for- mechanics. Okay. Uh, he was quantum mechanics study. <laughs> And uh, that word got smaller and smaller the more you tried to observe it (laughs) until it blinked into nothingness. It changed every time I tried to observe it. (laughs) Yes. And uh, he, uh, after high school, went on uh, and got quickly renowned and went on to King's College in in Cambridge and studied there at the he devised some theoretical mathematics theorems that were the foundation of how we use computers today or how computers are constructed today. So we think of like 1931, 1936 was this period when he was studying mathematics and developed what is now called a Turing machine. And a Turing machine is a theoretical process of a mechanical device taking input using rules to uh, adjust that input so you could give it ones and zeros and he literally used binary as his standard and this was before uh, modern day electronic uh, devices and uh, and bistable kind of, kind of things and so he was using binary and showed a process of taking a binary string of characters in, applying rules to them, and getting a calculated output. And that foundation was the uh, what he later devised into computing devices. Other people took uh, pieces of that and added their own flavors in. And today, that is the computing process and, and what we know. And so... He was very instrumental in computer science and the evolution of and the creation of computer science. I was looking up um, while you were talking there because I, I I feel like I remember a couple a couple weeks or a couple months ago bringing up Alan Turing and also saying we should do a, a, a subject on him. But I think it was during the Ada Lovelace episode. Ada Lovelace was oh, the right. lady who lived in the 1800s and invented her computing machine or whatever. Yes. And I think most of her stuff lay dormant until Alan Turing started picking it up. up And yeah, so yeah, that's an interesting, interesting progression. Um, And so at King's college, he was an avid uh, athlete as well. So he was in rowing and running and sailing. Uh, He went on to actually try out for the Olympics in uh, 1948. Oh, wow. And uh, in the marathon category, he would often, he was, uh, in a town outside of London, he would he would go forty kilometers uh, running to the next meeting, and, and so he was an avid athlete and and very very active as a as a runner. And um, during his time at King's College, he became a fellow at Cambridge at the age of twenty two, which was uh, not uh, a normal path that that anyone took. But his nineteen thirty six Turing machine. Uh, treaties basically uh, uh, landed him a fellowship at uh, at Cambridge. Wow. Um, he um, theorized the first computing. Uh, yeah, that was 1936. In 1939, when the war broke out, and and he was uh, famous, like personally very anti-political but um 
was a pacifist and and didn't want to engage in war and and all that. So he actually became part of the war machine in 1939 as they were looking for uh, solving the cryptography issues and his mathematics all pointed to cryptography and creating this process, this mechanical process to solve cryptography uh, solutions. And so his hallmark mainstay you know the uh the imitation game uh you know uh movie and everything is all about the enigma machine and his work in cracking the code of the enigma machine okay and we've had an episode about the enigma machine a number of years ago but basically the germans from the mid-20s on had developed a mechanical device that had basically a, a set of characters that were the key for the day and they that key would scramble any characters put into it into a coded message on the output and you could send that coded message across the country and if it were intercepted without the key you wouldn't be able it's to nonsense uh, to do anything with it there was famously a um a commonality that they were that i I don't know the name of the person, but it was a lady that discovered that uh, or theorized and then put that into practice that every German correspondence in in Nazi Germany always started with Hail Hitler. And they right, used that, that little key as uh, the foundation for cracking the code right. every day. And so they got to a point where they could crack the code in about two hours, which uh gave them unprecedented access to the information coming out of Germany and crossing uh, German airways. And this led to the reduction of uh, cargo vessels going into England. You know, England is a, uh, you know, Great Britain is an island, a uh, series of islands, and the supply vessels going into and out of of Great Britain were of critical importance to the war machine and to survival. Uh, you know, if if the German U-boat resistance could basically blockade any supply vessels going into Great Britain, the people would starve and they could shut it down. And so Turing's work on the Enigma machine to crack that code resulted directly resulted in a reduction of the blockade effectiveness by more than 70 percent wow and so uh each u-boat was claiming about five merchant vessel kills and uh they reduced it significantly uh and because they were able to say the u-boats will be here based on that message and so let's go over here instead right and so that directly affected the war effort and and uh, the effectiveness of the war machine in keeping Britain in in the uh, from being (laughs) keeping Britain alive and Hitler shifted focus away from Great Britain and said well they're untouchable for us to be able to fully take over let's focus on Russia and uh, that shift. Quick, it's December. <laughs> it's December, exactly. So that that effectiveness that Turing enabled ultimately shifted the, the Nazi war machine away from Great Britain and ended the war. Wow. And, and so uh, clearly it wasn't single-handedly, but without him, there were some key pieces that wouldn't have been put together for, for a long time. Uh, the fact that they cracked the Enigma machine didn't come out until 1970. Uh, no, they did not publicly announce that at all. It was a it was a war secret. Sure, uh, sure, uh, sure. Uh, and, and so it was wasn't until many years later that he was even recognized for that level of genius. <laughs> that would be that, that would be so hard to know that like I saved the world and can tell no one. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and no one would believe me <laughs> anyway. Wow. Until, uh, while they were, so this all happened at a place called 
uh, Bletchley Park uh, in Buckinghamshire, uh, England, that was called uh, nicknamed Hut Eight. And so Hut Eight was where this it was kind of a mansion that all of these brains were working on this this Enigma machine cracking the code of the Enigma machine. And uh, uh, at one point, Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited the uh, facility and he said this. He was shocked by the wide variety of backgrounds of the code breakers. In addition to the mathematicians and linguists, there was an, an authority on porcelain, a curator from the Prague Museum, the British chess champion, and numerous bridge experts. Churchill told uh, told this person, I told you to leave no stone unturned, but I didn't expect you to take me so literally. <laughs> so uh, that's amazing. <laughs> so that's, that's like that's totally a movie of like the ragtag group <laughs> that has to who learn the, the value was the friendship all along. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, it was because of this ragtag crew that they were able to think outside the normal box of how to approach problems and and how to solve them yeah and pattern recognitions of different patterns exactly and uh and so that was uh 41 um 42 was when the germans decided to leave british undefeated and and uh, go towards russia um and after the war uh, Turing was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire uh, by King George VI for his wartime services, but his work remained secret for many years, of course. Um, and he went on to create things like voice cryptography machine called the Lila, uh, where he was able to take recordings of voice in uh send it through a cryptography machine and have a scrambled output that then could be transmitted and decrypted on the other side. Uh, And so he was just... It's basically the uh, I barely knew her, uh, our I barely knew her voice. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So the, the name, The Imitation Game... That was the title of the movie came from. Is that a good? I'm, I've heard it was a good movie. Is that it, a good movie? Or it's, not? it's a good movie. It gets it. panned for accuracy. Apparently, oh, okay. nothing uh, in that movie is really accurate. He wasn't but a pro wrestler. He wasn't a pro wrestler. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's a good movie to watch and okay. and and uh, enjoyable. And you get a sense of the genius, but the specifics are are, are all, all right. shit. Um, so the imitation game was. Uh, there's a thing called the Turing test now that we understand as when artificial intelligence gets to a point where we can have a blind uh, two-way conversation with an entity on the other side. So uh, I'm chatting online with someone and uh, if I fully believe that that entity that I am uh, communicating with is human and not an artificial intelligence then it has passed the turing test and uh there's arguments about uh how that fits you know uh, i've seen people claim to be able to pass a turing test by using an ai that uses uh like street slang and try and dumbs itself down to be more realistic i remember it was a year or two or probably two or two or three at this point there was recordings of a conversation of like somebody calling up a restaurant to make um not an appointment a reservation yeah the google ai uh, voice for the google assistant making a reservation for a haircut oh that's right it was making the reservation not the other way around yeah and so you could say hey google i need a haircut and then, uh, and I'm available on Tuesday. And that will turn your lights off. And it will turn my lights <laughs> off. And so Google, uh, Google will make the call, act like a human. Hey, I'd like to make an appointment for and and do all this stuff. But there's, it's very much a kind of one way transaction 
that needs a little feedback. Right. And that person isn't looking to engage in a human conversation. Yeah. And so it's, it's a high ball, high bar to cross, but, um, and, and so there's there's arguments about whether that's been reached or not. Right. And I would say no, uh, generally. But um, but that was established by him, and and we've used ideas that he established in that uh, in that definition of the imitation game and the Turing test for captchas uh, or the things where you know I'm going. To I am not a robot. Pr- I am not a robot, and so we use that methodology to try and determine whether this is a bot filling out a form or not. Um, and as a web developer, I can tell you that most bots are really dumb. And, uh, and so do they not know about the, I am not a robot checkbox. They like, it's it's hard to cross that. Yeah. It's hard to cross that. So like one of the things that we do to prevent spam is called a honeypot. So a honeypot is a form field that says something like, fax number right and we hide that from view from humans and show it in the same way that a screen reader reads all source code uh, of a of a web page okay so the bot doesn't know that it can't see it okay (laughs) right and so it says oh fax number i'm gonna throw something in the fax number line as well and all we have to do is say if the fax number has something in it, then it's a bot. Okay. And I did this on Tuesday for a client. Uh, it took their 300 bots a day to zero. Uh, wow. And so it's it's just a thing. That's and, crazy. And, and so bots are dumb and <laughs> all, all of it. So far. Yeah. <laughs> so throughout this whole time. Because um, he sounds like he's very popular. He's very popular. He's incredibly accomplished. He's well regarded in the educational in in the top tier of the educational services in the world, and uh, and that's like with Einstein around, with Einstein <laughs> and with Oppenheimer, like and, that, and that's like, that's like being on the Chicago Bulls when, <laughs> when Michael Jordan, Bohr, and you know, like all all the greats were in this period, and uh, and Alan Turing was also pretty out in being gay like he was not super secretive about it he had his first relationship when he was 18 years old and then he had multiple other relationships with men at the time and it was technically illegal uh and he just took it as like yeah it's, it's technically illegal but you know who so it, is the, the world is progressive and we're getting past <laughs> it and he he actually um, so he's in a couple of relationships. They ended poorly. The first relationship that he had, the uh, his boyfriend died of uh, tuberculosis, and it devastated him. and And a lot of things point towards he focused on cryptography as a way of kind of coping coping with that. And so, thank you yeah. <laughs> to to that 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 helped us out uh, as as a human race but was devastating to him obviously yeah. and um he was in a couple other re- a couple other relationships <laughs> speaking of my relationship <laughs> nick so i didn't hear a big thump so i don't think he fell he just he just knocked over our comically high pyramid of plastic solo cups <laughs> exactly which, to be fair, we should not have left in the middle of the room <laughs> with no lights on. Uh, so um, he got engaged to a woman during this time, uh, right in the middle of having a couple of relationships. He he's like, OK, fine, I'll I'll do this. And then he came out to her and she's like was unfazed apparently and and she said you know let's just be friends (laughs) and they remained lifelong friends uh, after that and um and so he many times would confide in her about life and and all the things and and so in um in 1951 he was in a brief relationship with uh, a man named arnold murray and um and there was Murray was 
young. He was like 21 years old and kind of homeless. And uh, and and Alan Turing at this point and had golden locks and just sun-kissed skin. (laughs) Alan Turing, Alan um, liked the. project people you okay, know, and sure. so like to help people sure. out and, and all the things and so he just needs my help exactly. everything will come together and so there was there was um like he alan offered him money and he didn't want to seem like a prostitute so he didn't take money but he stole some money from alan's wallet and that kind of came back to him uh a few weeks later alan's apartment was broken into and burglarized and uh he was he lamented to his uh, former fiance, uh, Joan, and was like, it just seems really suspicious. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to confront him, but I'm going to. And, and uh, in some conversations, it, it turns out that uh, Arnold Murray's friend from college, his colleague or whatever, had done the burglary. And so then the police had a solid lead to go with because... Alan Turing uh, had had called the police about the break in and now had a solid lead and said, you need to go see this Mm -hmm. guy. Well, one thing led to another. And and once that person was in the mix and like, well, how do you know this person? Well, it's through him. And now his fingerprints are all over the apartment. He's like, well, what's in? And Alan's like, yeah, we're boyfriends like and had no issue with being truthful about the situation because he wasn't incredibly right. ashamed. He was well accomplished to, you know, and, and, right. and, and he, so he lamented and, and, and talked to Joan. He's like, the nation isn't as savage as it used to be. I'm going to be fine. Uh, everything's great. And so, um, he wasn't, and he was prosecuted for, uh, uh, for sodomy because, uh, sodomy was illegal in England at the time. And, the judge gave him an option of either going to prison or being chemically castrated. And Jeez. chemically chemical castration is a basically giving him estrogen to uh, to suppress any sexual desires. And so, since the sodomy was so destructive and so bad and evil, all we need to do is give you estrogen to make that go away, so that. Uh, you don't have that problem anymore. And, uh, and so he developed, uh, breast and mammary, uh, glands and, and, uh, and there's, there's conflicting reports about his mental state during this time as some colleagues say, yeah, he had no problem. He wasn't really mentally affected by this, uh, situation like he's huh. he's gotten past it he's fine now he'll you know uh it did cause him to be impotent uh it and it, it, so you you can't convince me that that doesn't affect you uh, right. deeply so um he loved uh disney films and uh, uh classically gay and 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 really appreciated the scene of the Wicked Witch giving the poisoned apple and, uh, and all of that. He also had a mother that was still alive and he didn't want her to be ashamed of him and mm. this whole thing. So that's why he avoided prison and, is he could oh, do this okay. kind of secretly right. and, and, and keep it on the DL. Jeez. Um, he, and there's conflicting reports about how this transpired as well is there's as part of his experimentation within his uh, home and, and stuff, he was doing some molecular biology uh, (laughs) things and he had access to cyanide. Uh, He could have uh, breathed in cyanide and died by cyanide poisoning. That is a possibility and people uh, have that as an open option. He did die uh, by cyanide poisoning, uh, and there was an apple that was half eaten uh, that was laced with cyanide. And and there's conflicting reports about whether it was tested for cyanide or not. And so whether the apple had cyanide that he consumed purposefully to die in a way that was Disney esque. 
um, is is the story that that's out there. We don't have, and we never will have, definitive proof of I committed suicide by eating this apple. But all of the arrows point in that direction. And regardless, he was chemically castrated by the British government. Uh, and yeah. he did die uh, at the age of 41 and w- just a, a shameful way. The uh, government of Great Britain has since renounced and, and apologized deeply for their shameful actions during that period. And, and uh, I don't know what it's like to live in a country who owns up to their past and <laughs> points out the places uh, that we have failed yeah. in an effort to get better. Yeah, so in uh, 1954, at the age of 41, uh, he yeah. died of apparent suicide in London. It's uh, not like he has any enemies that would have like... No. So like that's not a possibility that it's like somebody else. Yeah, there's no evidence of that. He was found by his housekeeper the next day. But uh, it is a possibility that like the bottle was left open and you could just accidentally whatever... Can, yeah, you could. he could have breathed the fumes in his lab right. and and then gone to lay down man yeah that's crazy Super and what so crazy. what year was that uh 54 54, 54. Okay. at the age of 41 and wow. uh yeah just so learn i learned more about his breadth of scientific uh you know his quantum uh, computing and uh and some biology things and he did some studies about uh, spots and stripes and in animals and how those are derived. We and, recently like, reported on that very <laughs> thing with the cows that were painted black and white, and they true. found out that they were bitten less. <laughs> exactly by by flies by uh, mosquitoes, and so uh, it. He definitely had a fascinating life, and uh, one of those Benjamin, shut, Benjamin Franklin shut. types, where it's like a little bit of everything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah really, really incredible soul. Interesting, interesting. Well, that was great. Good. I'm glad we, glad I finally got to learn more about him <laughs> without having to actually do it myself. <laughs> That's what this podcast is for. Ah, well, thank you everyone too for <laughs> two one four. <laughs> I just start repeating my childhood phone number. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> exactly. Thanks everyone for listening. You can hear us on the Fun Employment Radio Network. Uh, and you can also hear us on Portland at the Movies. Last week we did a movie called Starring the Mom from E.T. And oh. there was a lighthouse. <laughs> yes. And Shadow Play. Shadow Play. Shadow Play. Man, another just completely generic <laughs> title for Unmemorable. Unmemorable. Movie. This month, I was talking to Brian last night. We're going to be he said uh, so I said you know any ideas and he goes he sent the link to without a paddle and i was like oh good seth green matthew lillard i remember really liking that movie and then i noticed it is not without a paddle it is without a paddle two, you know something something but it's not even it's still called without a paddle but then like quote up the creek or something like that so it's it's doing its best to make you think it is uh without a paddle so we will be reviewing that one uh, in a couple of weeks here. But until then, um, without a paddle, nature's calling. Nature's calling. Yes, that is that is what it is. Yeah, it doesn't say two. No, yeah, it, it doesn't give you <laughs> wilder, hottier, hotter, and nuttier. And nuttier. Yes, and the cover looks exactly the same as the first one. Three so. guys, one chance, no plan. <laughs> what? So uh, tune in. Tune into that in a couple of weeks, but um, we will talk to you guys later. I have nothing to play us out with. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>